Welcome to the Command Line Podcast for October 27th, 2010. I'm your host, Thomas Commandline Gideon, a self-proclaimed hacker, eccentric, and hacktivist. This is my show about the practice and profession of programming, drawing on well over a decade of professional experience and a lifetime spent hacking, the intersection of technology with society and public policy, and anything else clever, elegant, or funny that catches my mind as a diehard technology geek. This episode is a feature cast in it. As promised, I have an interview with one of my very favorite authors, who's also a mathematician and a computer scientist, Rudy Rucker. We get into discussing some of his latest books, the re-release of the Ware Tetralogy from Prime and the post-singular Hylozoic Duology from Tor books, uh, as well as some of his views on complexity, computation, society, and the like. Because of the length of that interview, it does run about 40 minutes, there will be no new Hacker Word of the Week this week, and I'll hold off on getting to any listener feedback until the next episode. Two things first before I do get to the interview. First is just that there will not be a news program this Sunday. With the craziness around the holiday, my obligations as a geek dad, visitors to the house into the late hours of the evening, especially with the family dogs going crazy every time someone rings the doorbell. It's just not going to be feasible to do the recording here in the home studio. But I will be back with uh, a new feature cast next week on Wednesday, a week from when I release this. Lastly, I do want to point out that there are uh, some minimal quality issues with the uh, interview audio. It's always very difficult when making a remote connection, even when you get a very solid Skype uh, setup as we did to get rid of all of the distracting elements. Hopefully I've done a good enough job that you won't even notice, uh, and it's just my own uh, concerns over putting the best quality audio out there. There's a little bit of mic handling noise that you might notice. Uh, Maybe it was some wind that his microphone picked up and some intermittent machine noise that I did my best to try to knock down. Uh, Hopefully the end result is uh, up to the usual quality of the interviews that I release on this show. Rudy Rucker is a writer, mathematician, and computer scientist with over two dozen books to his name, both fiction and nonfiction. His work is clearly inspired by and evocative of the beat poets and his use of language and ongoing exploration of the subliminally surreal. He is credited as co-founder of the cyberpunk literary movement, though he has since been pursuing what he calls the transreal, a theory of narrative drawing deeply from the writer's personal experience and perceptions, often using elements of the fantastic to represent psychological change. I first encountered Rudy's work with the novel Spaceland, one of many conceptual sequels to Edwin Abbott's Flatland. The textured, vital, and often tragically flawed characters surfing through the vividly realized deep concepts, drawing from math physics in the realm of computation, instantly hooked me on his work. His most recent novels, Post-Singular and Hylozoic, in particular, mine a seam he uncovered in his nonfiction work, The Lifebox, The Seashell, and The Soul. Namely, that the universe may very well be entirely computation, though a variety that is gnarly or so complex as to be unpredictable. Welcome to the show, Rudy. Thanks, Thomas. It's good to be here. So you investigate uh, the notion of complexity in Lifebox uh, and in uh, Mathematicians in Love, which I believe you wrote shortly after that, and now in this new duology. How far uh-huh. back does the idea of gnarl go into your thought and specifically into your writing? Well, maybe the first time I heard somebody use gnarl in conversation was soon after we moved to California in 1986. 
there was a, a street festival and some people were roasting a, a whole pig and two young guys went by and one of them looked at it and said, gnarly, gnarly dude. And then I, I became interested in the surf culture here. I never managed to learn to surf. I, I got a board and a wetsuit, but I never got really mastered it. And, uh, but I like the idea of gnarliness, and I started using it. There was this big interest in chaos theory in the late 1980s and uh, the early 90s. And there is this notion of a system being, um, there's sort of two extremes where a system can be very uh, crystalline and orderly, like troops in a parade lineup, and then of a system being uh, very random, where it's like like molecules in a gas bouncing around. And then there's this, this sort of place in between. If you sort of dial up the temperature or whatever is driving the system, there's going to be this transition zone where it's not exactly orderly, but it's not either exactly random either. And that uh, there didn't seem to be a good word for that zone, and that's what I took to calling the gnarly zone. Do you think that's that's continuous uh, with some of the themes in the the Ware tetralogy, which uh, also I think that's your most recent release that was re-released in a wonderful uh, omnibus edition by uh, uh, Prime. In, in particular, uh, the Boppers have that uh, notion of well, they they have that uh, drive towards constant reinvention and and evolution. Evolution can be seen as a, as an early system, but also that. The random input that that cosmic ray source that they they have that uh, imperative to go back to. Well, yes, I've always I've I've always liked systems, whether or not I had the word or the concept of mathematical chaos. That's always the kind of thing I like. Things that are weird and complex. I, I don't like things that are predictable and boring. And again, something I like about science fiction is that there's this sort of. Uh, Oh, trellis work of traditional themes and ideas that we work with. So it's not, it's not like totally surreal experimental writing where, like, like when somebody's telling you a dream that they had and it just goes on and on and, and nothing adds up. So uh, I always liked having this uh, really odd, strange things happening, but with a sort of systematic, maybe scientific or logical system underlying it. Could the in in the uh, second book in the Ware tetralogy could the effort of the the boppers to to uh, encode their intelligence in genetics the so called meat boppers could that be seen as well do you think from that that same lens of of gnarl as as exploring the kind of richer forms of complexity inherent in biology or was there something else that kind of informed your thought there? Well, yeah, one of the things in the Ware tetralogy that. Uh, was driving that was my feeling that we we were and I started this in the early 1980s but there's this feeling that we are getting close to an era of building robots or at least intelligent computers and uh, what are they going to be like and usually the depictions of them that I'd seen in genre science fiction showed these these things to be boring and robotic in a bad sense of the word. Uh, just very dull and vanilla and uh, it's always kind of ludicrous in a 
in a Hollywood movie, they'll have, you know, the, the, the big brain. They even do this in The Matrix, which is hard to believe. They have the big brain, and then it's talking to you. It's a face on the wall, and it, it, it never seems to have mastered using contractions. You know, say, do not, we do not want to do this. And I wanted some kind of funkier, uh, more underground comics kinds of robots that were more fun to read about and more rubbery and obscene and robots that wanted to get high and robots that could dance and uh, and so that was sort of <clears throat> where I took off with software and and in wetware then yeah there was this idea that it's often seen it also seems to me that uh, really biocomputation is is a lot you know really going to be a hugely interesting thing to think about and that in wetware, they're starting to get into biocomputation as well as into the, the silicon computation. Something I sort of don't like about computers is that they're they're brittle. You know, if you if you bang one on the wall, it, it smashes. And uh, if you do that to a, a person, well, you know, they might get a bruise, but they bounce off the wall. They keep going. So I like the idea of uh, meat. Approaching that level of, of the biological, though, and, and kind of human consciousness, I think, leads into uh, one of the other things I find so striking about your, your writing is that what makes it stand out is that the characters are so consistently human. Uh, almost all of them share the same flaws and imperfections that drive real people into the looping, it's eccentric orbits of their unfolding lives. This is uh, uh, true even, I think, of, of the books not explicitly uh, that you identify as, as trans-real. What what animates that rich characterization is it is it just really wrapped up in that realization of uh, the, the avant garde notion or or is there more to it? Um, well, that's yeah, that's another thing that I wanted to do that you don't always see in science fiction. It's not all science fiction, but the, it's certainly there's a tendency when you're writing genre fiction to let the conventions of the genre take over, and maybe you you give short shrift to the uh, emotional makeup of the characters. Or you, you try to have some emotional makeup, but then if you're not careful, it's easy to settle for stereotypes, and you're just sort of plugging in these soap opera icons. And uh, one thing that I did, and I still do to some extent, when I want to create a character, I'll, I'll very often have a real person that I know in mind. And not that it's really representing what that person is like in real life, but just it's if like if you're a painter and you're doing you know some crowd scene, it would be a natural thing to to get people you know to pose or at least to to think about their faces when you're you're drawing the individual characters. Because if you just fall back on your imagination for characters, it's going to be it's going to be too thin. And also, it can happen if if you're careless, then all the characters can end up sounding like each other. And uh, so uh, it's sort of a matter of using realistic input from real life. And uh, also listening to the characters. I like to get their voices going in my heads and, uh, you know, let them say unexpected things. People normally don't say the expected thing, and that's that's where... If somebody hasn't worked hard enough on it, you, you read a page of dialogue and it's it's just completely flat and you know people would never talk like that. And uh, so that's it's something I try to build up. So there is an aspect of transrealism in it. As time goes by, I've gotten so I can sort of invent characters without actually having them be modeled on people. But 
it's more, sometimes you might collage together some aspects of people that you've seen. I've sometimes based characters on people I've never even talked to, just people that I've seen in the street, and then I start thinking about them and thinking about their lives and what they might be like. That, that comparison to painting, I think, uh, is very apt. I hadn't thought about it that way before, but uh, having some uh, experience, having taken art courses, actually, my degree is in fine art, uh, that I, I think that really does well inform and explain uh, what you're getting at. But uh, there's more to it, I think, in terms of, of you bring in these uh, wonderful uh, big ideas, and, and you talk about how some of these uh, stand in for uh, uh, flight as enlightenment, um, you know, the, the door into another dimension the, the, uh, leading to uh, altered perspectives. But it, it seems like there, there's a good balance in your stories. Is that a function of the fact that, you know, the protagonist has to be able to kind of seek a level where they don't uh, kind of shriek, you know, to Tui and, and JJ never really kind of give in and hylozoic to all, all of the craziness that's going on around them as they're, you know, going up through the dimensions and they're uh, fleeing from the, the, the sub D as they're crossing over. Uh, is that part of the, the your protagonist, or is that is that something else? Well, yeah, I think it tends to not be interesting if your characters lose their cool and they just start saying, "Oh my gosh, I can't believe this! I must be drunk, dreaming, or crazy," you know. And that's uh, it's. I mean, obviously, you're reading a science fiction novel, and weird things are going to happen. And now and then, my characters will will make a remark about it that it's unusual or they're having trouble dealing with it, you know, but I, I try to, I've, I've had friends who aren't familiar with science fiction, they'll read one of these books and they'll say, you know, why aren't the characters acting more freaked out about, about all this stuff that's happening? But I think it's sort of a, a kind of, you might almost say it's a convention of the genre that you expect your characters, they, they, at some level, they know their characters in a science fiction novel. I mean, and, uh, they're, they're kind of expecting a wild ride. And uh, the idea is rather than, you know, losing it and freaking out, you want to see how they're going to cope in some sort of constructive way, how to get through the situation and make the most of it. Well, what I like is that they, they cope realistically. It's not just a, uh, you know, stiff upper lip, jut out the chin. It's, uh, especially in Hylozoic, you know, that, that there's a, a romantic element and you see the strain that that puts on on your two heroes and, you know, the moments of weakness that arise that, you know, we could all see being put under that kind of stress. So they are coping, but it's not, uh, it's not cartoonish in any way. Right. It's, I want them to be, you know, in doubt and pain because, uh, again, there's, most people really aren't all that heroic. And I think it's not so interesting to read about somebody who's, you know, just, completely competent and heroic. I, I like the characters, they screw up. And you mentioned love. I've I found that over the years, I think that's really an important element for a novel, to have a love story in it. Because that's, uh, that's just, that's what, one of the things that you expect to see in a, a fiction uh, is, is a love story. And it's, uh, it's a rich thing to have in there. And then it gives you a reason to bring in characters of both sexes and have them relating to each other. and. And there's so many things you can do once you get a love story going. You can have the triangle. You can have the sort of, I guess you could call it the rectangle, where there's a couple and somehow they end up swapping partners. It's, that happens in uh, in Spaceland, and then, but in, it maybe it doesn't. It works out for one of them, but it doesn't work out for the others. And there's uh, a lot of things you can do there. 
Well, you, you see that same sort of geometry of, of romance in, in post-singular and hylozoic, too, with the founders, that there's that uh, unrequited love, that there's uh, perhaps a remorse about relationship and swapping of partners and, you know, that, that uh, dash of expectations on, on the rocks of reality. So it's a, it makes for a, a very interesting—I mean, even though most of the founders aren't as central as uh, J.J. and Tui are— uh, mm-hmm. You know, there's still that sort of richness that enlivens that as well. It's that you know, while this large drama in in both books is going on, uh, both of the large struggles in the duology, uh, there's also this background that's kind of uh, grounding them in some ways, embedding them in that that social reality. Yeah, there's that thing with choose parents that, that's a kind of rich. Yeah, uh, a common thread through many of your books is the exploration of consciousness. Uh, other authors, particularly cyberpunk authors, have also delved into these ideas, especially early on. The other writers who did so focused, I think, more outwardly on uh, emphasizing the technology or network society or something along those lines. Your approach is distinct in that it is bound up in the characters, as we've been discussing. Uh, Even when they're uploaded or otherwise translocated, they retain their distinctly human aspects. That's something that uh, I think surfaces most strongly in, in, in the Ware Tetralogy. Is that also part of your, your skepticism of the uh, science fictional conceit of virtual reality and the, and the personality upload, that mind is inextricably embedded in body and experience? Um, well, that's the, the whole upload idea. Really, software was one of the very first novels uh, that had that idea in it. Uh, there were traces of that idea in earlier novels, but I think it was the first place where it was concretely somebody extracted their mind from their body and they stored it as software and put it on a robot. It was, uh, it was because remember, I got my PhD in mathematical logic, so I'd been thinking about this process. And I remember at the time, in the early 1980s, this, it wasn't at all an obvious idea or an idea that was in the air. It was very difficult for me to come up with this idea. I actually wrote a paper in philosophy of mathematics about it uh, called Toward Robot Consciousness. And uh, I credited one of my inspirations being my friend Cobb Anderson. And uh, so to some extent software was almost a, a thought experiment working it out. Though as I say now it's it's a rather familiar concept in science fiction movies. Um, but um, over time uh, well I think even if your mind was uploaded into a, a robot, it, it would be important to have a body. If if you were inside a, just inside a computer, then then you you wouldn't have much of a life. And so, yeah, and living in virtual reality would, would just totally eat it. It's uh, people sometimes lose sight of how rich the computation of our physical reality is. I mean, we've got an octillion atoms here and each of them is running a quantum computation and the system is billions of years old and you're not going to you know boot up something on your desktop that's going to be anywhere rem- just anywhere remotely like that so um n- there's sort of a a belief sometimes sort of that it, it's sort of it's like an idea i talked about but it was always they weren't g- really going to live in virtual reality they were going to live in uh they're getting embodied into new bodies, but they're still in our physical world. And the thing about people's personalities not changing that much, that's, that's sort of a, that's something I always find boring in, oh, I don't know, something like, well, Star Trek, I don't know. The people, 
and sometimes in certain kinds of futuristic movies, they're also vanilla. I mean, they they may be different races, but they're just such vanilla people, and everything's so clean, and they're they're just so wooden. There's so much unlike real people, and. And sometimes when we imagine people in the past, we imagine that they were, you know, like these brain-dead wooden people. And But when you look at, oh, like I'm a big student of the painter Peter Bruegel, as I pronounce it, or Bruegel, as some people say. And you look at his pictures of the people in the crowds, and they're really just like people that we see now. The human nature does not change uh, in any rapid kind of way. And... Uh, People in the future are going to be a lot like we are now, and even if they're uploading their bodies. The, the personalities and the motivations are, are not going to be hugely different. And so that's, uh, I actually did a shift there. In order to figure out how to write about robots, uh, <clears throat> I did a, I sort of made a deliberate decision to give them personalities like people. So, because uh, they have to have some kind of personality, and either they're just going to be these dull things or, uh, and sort of stupid, but if they're as smart as we are, then it seems like they would have personalities just as rich. Well, I think there's there's also very apparent uh, in in the latter two books of the the Ware Tetralogy, they're very apparent kind of human motivations, uh, Eros and, and Thanatos, the drive of the the Moldies to reproduce. That that leads a lot of them, you know, the the arguments between the generations about you know should or should they not the younger ones use a thinking cap to to get to capture you know, a human that can get them the imiplex that they need, and uh-huh. and death being omnipresent in the fact that they have such a shorter lifespan that they're, you know, if they're not able to keep up uh, the plastics in their body to keep up the the, the mold impregnating that, that uh, it's just right around the bend. It's not, you know, it's a, it's right. a different time scale. Yeah, if, if we're going to have the idea of robots that are evolving, they're, they've got to, for the evolution to work, they have to be totally driven to reproduce and to... Uh, to preserve their, their their offspring in themselves. Robots evolving. It's <laughs> my wife making fun of me. <laughs> what? <laughs> that was my wife in the background making fun of me. Yeah, it's it's not such a you can laugh about it, but it's uh, there are a lot of people who take that pretty seriously. Um, maybe not thinking about robots uh, quite as you represent them in the narrative, but the the A life folks like yeah. Uh, you know, the thing about A life, it hasn't. That was so big in the 80s, and it hasn't really... It was going to be this magic wand, and we were going to get all this wonderful programs for free, practically, but it people don't talk about it so much anymore. It it hasn't worked out as well as we expected, the whole genetic algorithm thing, the whole A-life thing, the whole robot evolution thing, because it's sort of like the VR thing. We, we really underestimated how rich and large... Uh, the planetary biocomputation is. And we thought, well, I'm just going to get, and then we had these really small computers. I'm just going to put this little tiny system in here with a, a population of 256 creatures, and I'm going to have produced these uh, new, new life forms. So it's, it, it's a very a heavy load to make it work. Do, do, you, th- do you see any prospect of, of that changing uh, with uh, kind of where we're at with uh, e- even the architectures that are they're coming down the pipe and, and personal computers that we're seeing uh, so much more parallelism, which used to be, you know, like with uh, uh, thinking machines and Danny Hillis before he moved on, you know, intentionally building these, these, these kind of custom systems, and now we're getting something very similar just off the shelf. Yeah, well, I, I see, I think it's more of an incremental change. I, I think 
again, it's just it's just such a, a multiple order of magnitude difference between a, a, a planet that's been running for billions of years, and we've got populations in the millions, and they're they're living for years and years, and they're being updated every nanosecond, and comparing that to a desktop system, it's a uh, this said, uh, I think where we might we do see sort of evolution happening is inside. When you start viewing the entire internet, all the linked computers as a sort of single computer, uh, and that's a sort of ecology where we we do have things that are evolving. I mean, certainly viruses and antivirus wares, bots. There's a sort of evolution happening there, but. Uh, Again, it's, I mean, you had like, you know, a million years went by to get, to get like the first single-celled organism happening on planet Earth. So even though we're, we're tweaking it and pushing it, it's, uh, I, I don't think it's going to happen overnight. Well, certainly when you put it that way, in, in terms of just uh, such huge or orders of magnitude different. But but you, you don't see reason to, to give up then? I mean, it, as you say, it's kind of frustrating that, that, the promise of even some of these ideas in the small didn't pan out. Do you still think it's worth pursuing on that oh, longer range? I think it's worth pursuing because right now we don't have any better ideas. There's this thing, uh, I mean, so many problems in computer science are unsolvable. I mean, they're either formally unsolvable or they're just not feasible. And when we don't know what else to do, we say, well, let's just chip away at it with a genetic algorithm or, or neural nets are in a way that's a type of genetic algorithm. And generally speaking, for any AI problem, the one sort of universal solution that, that has some hope of working at least a little bit is neural nets. And that's, uh, that's all we have. There's still, there's this lingering feeling. There's some, some big idea that we haven't yet had about the way, uh, the way intelligence works and, and maybe you know be something you know as radical as, as using like a base 10 number system some really huge exponential speed up we could get that we haven't yet thought of but uh at present it's just a lot of neural nets and uh well i mean the thing is you get you get faster chips and, and more and more memory you can do quite a bit with those things so uh, returning back to uh, the, the narrative, uh, one thing that was I was kind of curious about that, that stood out is uh, how aliens kind of fit into uh, what we've been talking about in terms of uh, uh, the, the transreal characterization. You know, so whether the aliens are, are accidental, like the moldies or the high-brainers and the duology, or essential, like the metamartians or the varieties of aliens that, that uh, show up in Hylozoic, uh, they they still seem to be woven into your works. What what is the role of the alien then in in your stories? Well, one thing always again, I'm writing science fiction, and there's certain classic tropes that we have, and I like those things. It's like you know, if you're a composer, you say, well, I want to make sure to use an oboe. You know, I don't want to not use an oboe. So it's and I, I like the idea of aliens, and at a symbolic level. Uh, Aliens, they're a good metaphor also for other people. I mean, we even talk about immigrants. We call them illegal aliens if they don't have their papers. And it's true when you, if you go to another country or even when you enter a different subculture, you go to an ethnic part of town where you don't usually go, the, the people there, you, you can't so easily read what it is that they're thinking. You know, you don't know their conventions. So in some sense, it's like you're, you're dealing with intelligent beings, but 
you don't you can't quite understand where they're at so it's it's the experience of being around aliens so uh that's one of the reasons we like to write about aliens in science fiction it's it's a way of describing and then there's the the sort of flip side of that a, a lot of people who read science fiction are are somewhat uh, oh they they don't fit into society well they're they're geeky or they're uh they're sort of rebellious or they're punks and there's a feeling that many science fiction readers and writers have growing up you feel like you yourself are an alien and you know you understand how things should work but everything about the whole society around you is is so weird so you can either view yourself as a human in an alien land or you can view yourself as an alien who was dropped off by a ufo that was actually my novel the I think it was called The Secret of Life. There's a guy who discovers about halfway through. It's, it was a Bildungsroman. It was about my own childhood. And the guy discovers at some point that he's actually an alien who was set down by a flying saucer, which is very much a feeling that a lot of teenagers have. Talking about continuing possibly the story of Hylozoic in uh, uh, an interview with uh, Tor.com last year, you described the... Uh, there, there's one scene in there where Tui is kind of uh, uh, talking through... Uh, what happens at the highest dimensions after kind of the, the climax of the book. And, and you described uh -huh. that as sort of a sketch of possible ideas you might explore in a third volume. I, I know only a little more time has passed since you, you talked to John, John Joseph Adams, but have your thoughts evolved uh, any in the intervening months on the possibility of a third book? Well, partly it was there. To, I mean, I might still come back and do a third book, and I, I'm, I'm happy that, that you're interested in me doing that. It's nice to have some encouragement. Uh, a writer works very much in a vacuum, so it's it's hard to know what people really, actual people want to read. Um, with post-singular and hylozoic, uh, I think initially I might have thought as post-singular as a single book, but then there were there were some loose ends. There's some things I wanted to explain, like the magic harp. What what is that? And uh, then I slowly worked out a way that I could do a sequel. And there's another thing that I wanted in that sequel. I'd been, I wrote a novel, a non-science non fiction novel about the painter, Peter Bruegel. And I'd always thought it'd be fun to write about Hieronymus Bosch. And I figured out a way to work Hieronymus Bosch into uh, the sequel, into Hylozoic as well. And then uh, when I got near the end, it, there is this thing, for some reason it's become, people in science fiction always say, well, it's trilogy, trilogy, trilogy. And... I was thinking I could do another book, and I started thinking about it. But at that point, uh, in the end, Post Singular sold pretty well, and I think Hylozoic has done okay too. But I got this anxiety that maybe the books wouldn't sell enough, and then maybe Tor wouldn't want to buy a third novel in the series. And I was worried if I wrote a third novel in that series, it might be an orphan book that I couldn't sell. It would be hard to go to another publisher and say, Here's the third book in a trilogy, but somebody else published the first two. That, that, that might be hard to pull off. So uh, I was uneasy about that. There was another thing. I also began to get worried. In those two books, it's sort of like, oh, you know, it's, it's a, sometimes you think about music. And it's like I had decided to play this incredible speed metal, you know, and it was this, this riff that was lasting for six hours. It was... Like the science fiction gets so technical and so intense in those two books that some people like that, but there's other people. They, you know, they say, "Well, I want, I want something simpler." You know, it's 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 breaking my head. 
And I, I felt like maybe I've pushed it too far here. And if I go and do, because when I did those books, I also, I wanted to do something that was cyberpunk, although people didn't widely recognize that Post Singular was a cyberpunk novel. It, it wasn't, the, the critics didn't seem to pick up on that, though it's sort of obvious to me of sex and drugs and a bunch of kids going crazy. And uh, the ideas in the book were, were really interesting ideas. I thought, I'm not going to hold back. I'm going to, you know, go flat out with the science fiction, you know, push in as hard as I can. And there's some really ideas that have never been in a science fiction novel in those books. Because I do know a lot about the theory of computation. I was a computer science professor for 20 years. So I worked out this cool stuff. But I was worried that, you know, there might not be a market for a third book. And so also something that happens whenever you're doing one thing or whenever I'm doing one thing, I say, well, you know, I'm tired of doing this. So I want to do something else now. So I thought, in any case, I don't want to write the third novel right now. And then I just had this sort of, oh, I don't know, sort of Dadaistic idea. I decided I had these sketches of what would go in the third novel. And I thought, I don't want to have this hanging over me. And in case I never get back to this book, people are always going to wonder what, uh, what they saw when they, went up, when they went up to the transfinite level. So I decided to have Twee just tell it in this sort of very flat California accent kind of thing over this speech she makes over about two pages. And I, I thought that was funny to have a whole th the whole third novel, just somebody just tells you over two pages. And then JJ says something like, okay, now we're done. And then it's over. So we're out of there. Yeah, I that that definitely did come across. Uh, it, it, it delighted. It was kind of off the wall. And I, I think I said in my review, it's like you kind of wrapped it up to the point where if the duology had to stand alone, it could stand alone. You, you didn't need to, as you said, you know, you just went through in the second book like this sustained blast of speed metal of ideas. And, and so maybe you don't need to, to delve into the transfinite and go through that. But I, I do like the fact that door is kind of open. And I think in, in that same interview with uh, John Joseph Adams, you talk about maybe uh, if you do come back to the third book to change things up, like hopping a generation. And that might be kind of cool to see even further yeah. down the line how, uh, you know, unrolling the, the, the Lazy Eight, uh, it kind of changes things much more profoundly than uh, J.J. and Twee, who were, were, you know, right in the thick of it and, and instrumental actors. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And uh, that's something I also did with software, having the time goes by and the characters get older. Yeah, if I came back, it probably would be later. Uh, but it, it, we'll have to see. It's, the market has a lot to do with it, too. It's, uh, you know, you write what you're pretty sure you can sell. I guess I'm, I'm surprised and not surprised that, that maybe people didn't quite see the, the, the cyberpunk in this. I mean, as you say, the, the punk's fairly obvious with the, the big pig posse and, and the young characters kind of, uh, you know, acting against a variety of systems. Uh, but the cybernetic here, I think, is also very manifest. The fact that, uh, that the world becomes hylozoic is that, that cybernetic feedback loop is instilled into it. That, that missing piece is, is the very essence of cybernetics. Well, something that happens, it's, uh, I, my sense, I mean, maybe all writers feel this way, but I tend to feel that the, uh, the people, like the literary science fiction critics, uh, maybe they tend to, to give short shrift to my work. They tend to be less familiar with it than some other writers. Uh, 
And maybe that's because my, my work is a little more punk or has a little more science in it. But there's something about it that uh, if you have an English major, uh, he's not necessarily going to gravitate to my writing. And uh, it's almost like they sort of, they're tired of me being a cyberpunk. They'd rather not talk about that. It's uh, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Well, I, uh, for what it's worth, I think uh, my listeners, these books are right up their alley because it is that, that wonderful uh, conjunction of, of computation, of, of technology. And, and as we've been talking about, it, that you never lose sight of, of the human story. You know, however you manage to get into that. I, I love your explanation uh, of the alien. That, that just emphasizes that it's about, it's about relation and understanding, and, and it's not uh, totally out there. Like, I mean, there are, I think there are, are some science fiction authors I've read who maybe fall too much in love with those big ideas that, that have also have backgrounds in mathematics, physics, and computer science. And uh, maybe you lose sight a little bit of the, the small story uh, for that, that really big idea kind of looming over it. Yeah, yeah. I always like to see that science fiction is being fundamentally about real life. It's it's always our real life looked through, looked at through some funny glasses. There's one other thing, uh, more on the uh, nonfiction side, and and kind of in that vein of technology we were talking about earlier. I was I wanted to kind of pick your brain about, and that's, uh, you know, in some ways you talk about some of your your blogging uh, about how technology's kind of rubbed out some of the the rich complexity introduced by hand making when you look at. Uh, uh, modern architecture, for instance, versus when you go out in, into nature. Uh, but it also seems in some ways maybe technology is poised to give that back. Does the improving access, do you think, to, to 3D scanners and printers give you reason to hope that the world of the maid will increasingly evince that sort of gnarl we only previously consistently found in the natural? Uh, yeah, that's, that is true that as you can computer customize things and, uh, well, like... Uh, the, the the like, what's that architect's name? Uh, the guy who did the Disney concert hall in L.A. and the uh, the famous museum in Bilbao, Spain. Uh, first, I'm blank. You know, it'll come back to me later. But it's the idea is if you if you have a good computer, you can do CAD and you can make shapes that are more interesting than. Uh, you know, blocks and boxes, you can make these, these very cool curved shapes. Though I don't think 3D printers are really going to help us. I mean, the things I've seen that come out of 3D printers are, at present, they're, I don't know, they look kind of kludgy. I, I think somewhere Gibson writes about buildings that are sort of growing, kind of like cellular automata. And I think other people have picked up on that idea. And that's sort of promising. That's when we get sort of a little more into biotech. It's, I think to get the really gnarly looking stuff, you, you want to have a, a parallel system, like a mass of cells that are sort of growing it. And that's, uh, that seems promising. The People always get uneasy when they, they think about buildings growing. I mean, what if a seed lands in your backyard and you wake up and there's a, you know, a, a gene store that's grown in your backyard? Uh, or if your furniture is intelligent, what if, you know, the furniture gets drunk and trashes your house while you're gone? But uh, I, I think I think the, the, the emergence of, of more intense computation and also more biological kinds of computation 
they do offer some hope, but uh, there's still a lot to be said for things that are handmade by human beings. Well, I was I was just thinking there was a um, uh, I'll link to it in the show notes. I'm I'm, I'm blanking on the uh, the designer uh, was speaking at an event, and he was talking about kind of just the advent of of being able to do uh, much richer customization. And and you know you talk about uh, the the complex computation, uh, especially in Lifebox. You know the the sort of nested scrolls and 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 some of the forms that can come out of surprisingly out of uh, out of CAs and other sources. That uh, it, I mean, may, maybe it's a function of the fact that that uh, you know powder bed or, or extruding printers are just so uh, inherently serial, you know. So maybe there's there's some uh, there's probably always the possibility of some breakthrough that that brings something more biological to that. Yeah, there's a group of designers. Uh, I think they're called Nervous System, and they're they're designing things like pots and uh, lamps. And they're using th- systems sort of like cellular automata. They're using the, so- the there's this software called processing that uh, a lot of Mac users like to use. And uh, I, I think, yeah, we could see a lot of that. They, they were talking about this a few years ago that in catalogs you'll be able to customize your products much more. And uh, it hasn't happened yet to the extent that they were saying it would. Uh, but it, it's... In principle, it seems like it would be nice you could design something totally the way you want, and then uh, the factory will make it for you. So uh, that that direction could be happening, but it also people very often they they don't want to bother doing the design; they just want you know they just want to pick one. I, that's pretty much all the the questions I have at this point. Do you have uh, any books or other projects coming up that you'd uh, like to talk about? Um, well, I'm just in the process of selling my most recent novel, Jim and the Flims, to Nightshade Books. And uh, they're thinking about putting it out uh, in the summer of 2011. So that'll be my next novel out. And that uh, that's where a guy, the main character, goes, Jim. And he, it's, it sort of goes back to something I did in White Light. It's, he goes to the afterworld. And it's sort of an Orpheus and Eurydice story. His wife has died to some extent because of some blunder that he made. And he goes over to the afterworld. And the things that live there, they're called flims, a little like flimsy. And uh, his goal is to try to bring back his wife's soul and reincorporate her as a, as a human being on Earth. And so that's kind of a, an interesting novel. And then uh, my autobiography is called Nested Scrolls, and that's going to be coming out in two editions. Uh, PS Publishing in England is doing a sort of a limited collector's edition, and they'll be putting that out, oh, I think very early in 2011, maybe in January. And then um, Tor Books is going to pick that out and put that out as a, a trade release in the uh, late in the fall of 2011. So that's going to be my memoir. And uh, I'm just starting work on a, a new novel. Uh, I'm still not exactly quite sure where it's going. I think it has to do with Alan Turing, the uh, computer pioneer. I have an idea that he actually managed to escape. If you know about the history of him, he was found dead in his bed, and he seemed to have killed himself by uh, eating a, an apple that he'd injected cyanide into. And... Uh, there's some feeling among some people that 
possibly the, the British Secret Service, their sort of equivalent of the CIA, might have killed him because he was gay and he knew a lot of uh, government secrets. And uh, so I'm setting up my novel, assuming that that was what was actually going on and that Turing actually managed to escape dying. And then he goes up to Tangier and he meets William Burroughs there and then he goes to the U.S. and uh, things will unfold from there. That Turing story especially sounds fascinating to me. Uh, one of the periods of history that uh, I enjoy reading about and exploring is, is definitely um, the code breakers at Bletchley Park, the, the role of computation there, and, and kind of his uh, very, very seminal role with that. So that, that sounds absolutely fascinating. And yeah. then the tie-in with Burroughs. Um, I, I've been reading uh, some of your progress notes uh, on your blog, and it sounds like it's going to be a really... Uh, really kind of cool story, you know, just... Uh, yeah, yeah, I hope I can day. make it work. Excellent. But one of the interesting things about Turing was, at the very end, he was interested in biocomputation. His last paper was about chemical morphogenesis. So he was moving away from computers. He was already sick of them, and even though they were just starting and wanted to get into biocomputation. So that's going to be a big part of the book, too. Excellent, excellent. So where can the listeners go if they want to find out more about you, about these projects, uh, books past, and, and the like? Well, the best place is my blog, rudyrucker.com slash blog. And there's, there's little links for the books at the top of the page. And there's uh, links along the right side that they go to other, other aspects of my multifarious activities. Wonderful. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure talking to you today. All right. Thanks, Thomas. Thanks for taking the trouble. That's going to do it for this episode. As always, I want to thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed the program, please do tell a friend. Or go to the website at thecommandline.net and click on the support link for all the ways you can financially help out with the production of the show. If you have a question, suggestion, or correction, you can send those to feedback at thecommandline.net or you can post those as a comment up on the website. If you're away from your computer and the internet at the moment, call the listener comment line at area code 240-949-2638. If you need to get in touch with me securely, details of my public key pair can be found at thecommandline.net slash G-N-U-P-G fingerprints. The next show, as I said, will not go out Sunday as usual because of the holiday, but rather will be a feature cast on the following Wednesday, a new Hacking 101 segment on designing APIs. So until then, don't forget to hack your world. I would like to thank the Internet Archive for media hosting and bandwidth. This show is produced from 100% recycled bits. Permission to recycle those further is granted under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 United States license. That means you're free to change this show as much as you like as long as you don't alter credits and you share your changes under the same license.